Hello and welcome to Pod Sequentialism. I am your host, Matt Kennedy. Pod Sequentialism, of course, grew out of the Pop Sequentialism Exhibitions Catalog and Traveling Show. You can visit Pop Sequentialism online at popsequentialism.com. If you want to follow this podcast and our various social media, you can do so at Pod sec p-o-d-s-e-q on instagram and twitter you can go to the pod sequentialism page on facebook saying pod and pop i know it's confusing it's the way we like it over here and uh, as you know we record every week basically here at uh, meltdown comics and collectibles Often they have a lot of interesting things going on. Generally, when we're taping here on Sundays, they've got a lot of gaming going on with uh, tabletop D&D and stuff like that. And uh, there's a lot of guilds, and then there's a lot of Nerdist stuff that goes on, so you can stop in and have a good time pretty much any time at Meltdown. We also want to give a shout-out to La Luz de Jesus Gallery, which um, I'm actually setting up the coaster show our annual over 1,000 piece extravaganza that we do every September because I'm a masochist. And uh, all of the pieces are about four inches, not about, they're exactly four inches, and they're either tondo, which is round or square, and some of the best artists working in contemporary pop participate in the show. It's a maximum price of $250 on any coaster, and some of the coasters are free. So it's one of those events that we get a ton of people into. We're going to have Fort Point uh, pouring the beer this year and uh, Sino Tequila as well. Uh, don't overdo it. Come for the art. Stay for the drinks. And uh, also, of course, within the realm of La Luz de Jesus Gallery is Wacko and Soap Plant. And that's actually um, part of what brings today's guest to the show is that um, Jordan is the son of one of my co-workers, actually, uh, Lydia Breckenridge, and also his, his dad, Jeffrey Mantor, is the owner of Larry Edmonds Bookshop, which is the last remaining collectible shop in Hollywood. And it's been around for decades. It was when we were all at Hollywood Book and Poster once in the day. Uh, it was our, our neighbor on the same block. We would send people there back and forth. They would do the same. Uh, great people. Still has a great collection of, of archival posters and contemporary books. They do a lot of great signings with filmmakers and contemporary scholars. But um, before we get into talking to Jordan, uh, I want to give a, a little bit of time to S.J. Harris, um, with Threader 24 Racing, who died on the set of Deadpool 2. Miss um, Harris was the first African-American female professional road racer. She was a stunt double for Zazie Beats. And, um, of course, any time a stunt person dies on a set, there have been a few in the last year and a half. It's, um, it's, it's cause for, uh, for great sadness. Um, I know that a lot of these people would rather die doing what they love than not and doing some of the incredible difficult to choreograph stunt work is part of the draw for a dangerous um way of making a living but um you know i think it's it's perhaps doubly upsetting in this case um considering some of the controversy about the casting of the person who she was doubling on screen in the particular role that she has and uh, now we, of course, all want the film to be incredible to justify the, um, the senseless death of one of its key participants. So um, best of luck to the cast and crew and the family members uh, connected to Deadpool 2. Looking forward to seeing the film. Very um, interested in looking to see how they integrate Domino into this, into this film. So 
Welcome to the show, Jordan. Uh, good to be here. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. So this is kind of great. I love one of the great things about this show is that, you know, we, we schedule people and people drop out of the schedule. And then it's it's sometimes easy to pull somebody in and say, hey, can you cover for this? And we really love to have you on the show. And other times it's just me talking for 40 minutes. And, and um, the fact that uh, people still tune in, it makes me really, really happy. But why I thought you'd be great to talk to is for a couple of reasons that we've done a show before with Chris Sapp about being the second generation of fandom. Mm. And so, you know, we mentioned that your mom works at, at Wacko. She's one of the managers here at the shop where La Luz de Jesus is. But she was also very important part of the Los Angeles punk scene. Um, she was in the Boneheads and was also in the Bags for a little bit. She mm. was um, a roadie for the Cramps. And in a scene in the late 70s, especially the punk scene where which was predominantly, if you think of the English punk scene, predominantly white working class to middle class um, punks. The LA scene was a little bit different because it was a little bit more color, but it was just a little bit. Mm. So there was like the Latino bands from East LA, like the Plugs, and um, you had from San Diego the... um, the, um, Oh God, Elvez's first band. um, Not the Wackos. But um, there's quite a few... Latin punk bands, but there weren't a lot of African Americans in punk in the late 70s. Mm. And to be a woman and to be an African American who was in a punk band is, you know, breaking some real ground. And I love hearing the tales that your mom tells about about the punk scene. I know they're few and far between. Yeah. But it's also interesting because you're the first person I've had on the show that had two musician parents. And you, of course, were... You were acting out of high school, mm. um, and you ended up going in a slightly different career path. But talk to me a little bit about that. You know, what was what was it about growing up in a household with a a fairly important collectible authority like like uh, Jeffrey, and with um, you know a, an important punk rocker like Lydia? Uh, you know, it's funny because uh, talking about their interests like this, it's funny how growing up how good they were in certain respects about not bringing a lot of that home with them. Yeah. You know, my, my dad brought the movie stuff home in the form of, you know, watching movies, talking about movies, intaking various forms of, of media in that sense. Mm-hmm. In terms of the actual collector stuff, you know, expensive books, scripts, signs, stuff, memorabilia that, you know, literally thousands of at the store, there wasn't a lot of that in the house. Right. So it was almost more of a treat to go in there every day whenever I wanted to look at this stuff and read it and like have carte blanche with it almost. Note to collectors, and, uh, <laughs> this is the way to do that if you can. If yeah. you can keep all that stuff out, outside of where you sleep, it's, it's amazing. It would have just ended up ruined. I yeah. would have just ran my fingers all through it. But, you know, <laughs> it, having it divorced on that level was really beneficial for me because mm-hmm. having that level of separation also... It gave me a space to flourish creatively. Right. Having a separate place to sort of articulate my thoughts on all of that. Stuff. And not get hammered with it. Uh, well, yeah. Which absolutely. can happen. It, I mean, you see at the conventions, you've got the parents that have their kids dressed in Star Trek costumes. And yeah. you sort of hope, I hope they like Star Trek. I hope they grow up to no, enjoy it absolutely. and not hate it. But, um, and what about the the music aspect? Was that that kind of, I think... A lot of people who get involved in music do so for a performance sake of mm-hmm. one one way or another. Mm-hmm. And so do you think that that had any kind of quiet influence on you wanting to be a performer at a certain point? Possibly. Um, I didn't really have information on what specifically my parents even did. I knew that my mother was a, you know, quote, musician, unquote, and mm-hmm. my dad was like a, quote, musician, unquote, 
up until like a certain age, probably like teenage years or something. It was just like, it was a hobby. I didn't really understand the intensity of which they were in the scene. Right. Really. But as I got older and, you know, you get older, you hear more stories of, of varying vulgarities and everything. <laughs> yeah. um, you know, it just sounds a lot more interesting. My dad was in, you know, a few various outfits. I know um, Sunset Strip. I forget the the name of the venue. It was, not Sardi's because that's for New York. Right, but, right. Um, well, was, was Jeffrey like a jazz musician? No, actually. He was actually a rock and roll guy. Okay. He moved here originally with a buddy from Reno, Nevada. That was his hometown. So I'm sure he played the whiskey or he played like he the He definitely played. He has stories about whiskey for sure. Yep. Um, basic venues, a few of which aren't there anymore. Mm-hmm. Decline of Western Civilization. Yeah. I'm sure you can you can catch a few of those in yeah. there. But The country club. Yeah. And, and yeah. in the same respect, like my, my, my dad was good for movie stuff. My mom was good with that music stuff too because my mom has a very wide varying range of what she listens yeah. to and you you kind of piecemeal together what you like what you don't like but yeah. all the all the punk stuff that I got well now she just plays your iPod well yeah <laughs> it's it's a few years old though that selection's been updated a few times yeah. since since then I'm sure now you um you did a little bit of acting mm. and you you didn't enjoy it or you just didn't feel like you had a, a capacity for it uh, you know, it's funny, um, reflecting on it a little bit more as I, as I get older and, and I'm not doing it so much every more mm-hmm. every day. It's it's funny how, like, just starting from the age of five, which is when I started doing it, to mm-hmm. about 17, 18, to which I stopped. There's various child actors that flourish and do very well and various actors that maybe don't even take off as children but continue and develop into adult actors right. who are able to, like, take that sense of, you know, whether it's rejection or necessarily, you know, dissatisfaction of what you're doing, they're able to channel that and turn it into a more comprehensive way of doing what they want to do in terms of acting. And right. I, it was just a step I was missing. Yeah. And it was frustrating, especially in high school, you know, doing shows. And even in my senior year, I was the lead of a show. Yeah. And, you know, I, I won an award. It wasn't a big award, but it was like an informal young arts award for that. And just seeing other actors who I knew were better and were just way more dedicated mm-hmm. and hadn't had rejection just pounded into them year after year. Um, but still loving the nature of making films and watching and consuming that art form. Right. It led to me wanting to like, you know, maybe I want to write writing movies, having a different lens into that just seems more appealing. Which is something we have in common. Yeah. And that um, I didn't start as young because I, I didn't move out here until I was in my late teens and started acting by accident, you know, sort of, you know, pulled out of a pulled out of soap plant actually by yeah. Mel Brooks. Oh wow. But um and started acting for a while, but I didn't love it. And I think that if I had been doing more theater type stuff, I might have enjoyed it a lot more. Mm-hmm. But those casting calls, you know, those That's those big cattle it. call ones yeah. where it's like seven up or Mountain Dew was the big one where you've got like 400 people in a room Definitely. and they don't hit the time that they gave you to give that you're supposed to read. And you do like five of those a day, no, you know, yeah, for definitely. months at a time. And if you don't book something, you start to get serious self-doubt. And I think a lot of people who haven't been actors in the capacity of it being your job, which means that you have to go to as many casting calls as your agent sends yeah. you on that they don't understand the process and it can be very dehumanizing oh, absolutely and I stopped going on auditions when I got called into a casting where the casting agent asked me to take my shirt off 
Uh-huh. And I didn't feel comfortable. I didn't know that that was part of the job. Right. I'm, I never saw that commercial happen. So mm. I'm not sure what the, oh. <laughs> what the thing was. And so it, it made me understand how, how hard it must be for, for you know, women actors. Oh, absolutely. That it's like that they get this all the time. And that really opened my eyes. And I'm like, wow, you know, I was more interested in writing. I had already been a rewrite guy and had done some yeah. other behind-the-scenes stuff. And I took it as an opportunity to spend more time on sets doing other things and learned about gripping and learned about lighting and audio and all that jazz, which helped when I became a producer because I knew <laughs> if someone wasn't doing something right. But um, you ended up becoming much more involved in that kind of back end of the industry. Mm-hmm. And one of the things, and I remember when you first left town, yeah. you know, that um, you went, you got a job with Alamo Draft House. Correct. And so part of their training program was to send everybody at that point to Texas mm-hmm. to learn every aspect of the job. Mm-hmm. And they would figure out where they felt your strengths were and then put you in the right position. Mm-hmm. So what happened and, and how did that happen? You know, bear in mind, I, I did sign a confidentiality agreement about okay. a lot of us. So there's, there's only so much I can get into. Sure. But, you know, a lot of it really has to do less with, with the company, any of their goals, any of their aspirations, any of their intentions, and more of, like, myself and my strengths as a manager and as, as a person. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, Alamo Drafthouse is a very esteemed, appreciated brand, very, the high volume of that sort of stuff. Yeah. Arclight being the most familiar thing to people in L.A. To that don't know people around it. here, yeah. I know IPIC has some stuff here and there, but yeah. I, I'm not entirely sure. Mm-hmm. Um but yeah, you know, just the, the crossover, just let me articulate myself. But the level of volume that you just go through on a day-to-day basis, and just dealing with that many people, ritually, it sort of divorces you from the more creative aspects right. of what I want to do. And once again, that's not the company; that's more me. I'm right. an inherently, I'm not a numbers guy. Right. I'm not a. I'm never going to be a CEO. I'm not mm-hmm. like an entrepreneurial sort of dude. I'm a guy that put me in a room, give me a piece of paper, tell me something to write. I'll write it. Give me a camera. I'll shoot it. Right. I'm I'm more, I can give you something tangible on that level. And you know, I'm still think I'm still think I'm a good manager. An executable technician. Yeah. I'm a free agent. I can't under my, I can't undersell myself too much, but (laughs) you know, but I think what's interesting is that you were a very important part of setting up the Brooklyn Mm. Alamo draft house. And now it's it's great when I get to talk to someone here in L.A. that has and, and because the podcast and people listen to it all over the place and, and we hope we have listeners in New York City that um, that there will be people that will be more familiar with that situation than I am with mm-hmm. with the person that I know better than they know, mm-hmm. you know? <laughs> yeah. which I hope that I hope that articulates well yeah, uh, to ears without my hand gesturing. <laughs> but that. um Part of that, I mean, how long were you in New York when you were doing the setup and you stayed there and you realized, okay, well, wow, this is this is a lot of volume. This is a high-volume business. Yeah, you know, I, I touched down in New York for a job in June after a few months of training. And, you know, we went through, you know, the feeling out period, you know, pre-opening, all that jazz, mm-hmm. end up opening in late October, mm-hmm. at which point, you know, think of late October. If you're a movie guy, you know the movie schedule, you can think of how usually the movie situation ramps up yeah. for that winter season. You're out of the blockbusters, but you're into like the the franchises yeah, yeah. and then the award films. Yeah, late October, early November. And last year, early November was Doctor Strange. That was our yeah. first big movie. But bear in mind, you also had Moonlight and yeah. you also had a really great underrated film if you haven't seen The Handmaiden. Right, got right. a lot great, of buzz. The Korean film, yeah. Yeah, if you haven't yeah. seen that, I'd definitely recommend that. We opened with that too. Yeah. And... 
you know, when you cater to that many people, all walks of life are going to come at once to see what they want to see. Yeah. And with the added benefit of, you know, the whole movie, drink, and the atmosphere. For those who don't know, that, Alamo you know. Draft House serves beer. Yeah. So that's, Among what, other that's what we're dancing around here. And, and hard alcohol. Yeah. And so you get a slightly more, I'm just going to say it, belligerent crowd on occasion. Occasionally. And um, I know that at Alamo that's much less common than it might otherwise be. And yeah. that part of the, the, the system that they have in place is to have security and people that kind of oversee um, you guys aren't above pulling somebody out of the seat and throwing them out. No, it's it's never the first option. It's never something we want to glorify. I'm I'm saying we because like I, I do not work with a company anymore. Let's right, make it right. clear. But you know, you know, formally, it's not something that the company enjoys to do. Right. But we we give them every opportunity to like don't talk. They get the warning. Yep. And then they're they're respectfully asked to to leave at a certain point because yep. we we got to take the value of every guest into account in but it's also situation. enforcement of, of the contract between the viewer and the screen Correct. that um that if you if people know that they can actually get kicked out for not yeah. behaving they generally behave better no and that's yeah. flat out stated because yeah. you know no no business should be in the business of just chucking people out with giving them fair warning or a set yeah. of rules alamo does the same thing yeah it's stated multiple times you walk through any venue i can go in there as a guest right now mm-hmm. and get thrown out for the exact same thing exactly it's totally non-discriminatory in that sense well cool well this has been a short kind of um window into yeah. <laughs> other careers that can happen that are um related to the entertainment business and what i think is great again is that a lot of times what's great about pursuing the arts is that you don't necessarily find yourself in the position that you aimed for but you find yourself in the position that you're geared for and sometimes there people don't understand how many middle steps there can be which is great people who are looking to prolong their involvement with the arts can do so in a lot of different capacities that may not be as immediately rewarding, but are great stepping stones. I have to imagine that with all of the filmmaker screenings that got hosted at mm-hmm. Alamo Draft House, that you had quite a bit of interaction with very interesting, very talented people who, like the general public, can cover a, a very wide swath of awesome people and mm-hmm. people that you wish were more awesome mm-hmm. and that that can be used as a stepping stool or a stepping stone um, moving forward that you get to ask questions by proximity that you have proximity in a different capacity than the general public mm-hmm. because you're a paid professional to be in this place mm-hmm. and that you can kind of pick the brains of people that you respect and so as somebody who's as you've stated who's more interested in writing and directing and that type of stuff that this job that you had at Alamo Draft House gave you a better toolbox than some people have with their professors in film school mm. I would you know in, in certain respects I would agree to that um Definitely on a management level. I yeah. think, like they say, the old axiom is if you can make it in New York, you can you can make it anywhere. Yeah. And a- applying to workload, if you get real heavy into what you want to do and you accomplish it, you will you will be given the opportunity to do it at the highest level there, right, right. more so than maybe anywhere else. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's something that is going to go with me. I don't know what I'm doing next, but mm-hmm. whether it's creative or in a more tangible, you know, workplace environment. Mm-hmm. You know, that it's you got to learn from experience no matter what you do. And that's something that it's incredibly hard to just overlook. I'm going to remember that forever. Right. Perfect. Well, let's shut out some social media. 
Oh, uh, you know, I don't have a whole lot going on. I'm probably going to reopen my Instagram just <laughs> for this. Um, it's at Half Dark Night. Mm-hmm. And the Facebook, you can just, I don't have any, you know, non-public page. If you want to follow me, feel free to follow me. I got I got jokes for days, but... <laughs> and that's um, Jordan Mantor, yeah. uh, J-O-R-D-A-N-M-A-N-T-O-R. And excellent, man. Thanks for uh, filling in on this uh, this quick episode oh, of Podsequentialism. Yeah. Thank you for having me. And uh, we'll have you back on a roundtable. I think that'd be great. Oh, I'd, I'd love to be here. When and where, man. Excellent. So once again, I want to thank everybody and especially um, my producer, Mason. And um, want to remind people again, you can catch us on social media at, at Podsec. P-O-D-S-E-Q and that uh, advertisers you too can reach this prime demographic hello this is Matt Kennedy from Pod Sequentialism and um, what many many of you may know that I, I do run a gallery in Los Angeles called La Luz de Jesus Gallery and what you may not know is that it's inside Wacko, which is probably the greatest center of pop culture in the world. And it may sound like hyperbole. It's not. Um, you can, If you don't want to trust my judgment, you can listen to people like Kevin Smith, uh, James Gunn, uh, David Mack, um, all of whom will swear that uh, one of their favorite places on earth is uh, Wacko, the shop that houses La Luz de Jesus Gallery. Um, whether it's blind box toys or little tchotchkes or art books, it pretty much is the place that you can get all of your Christmas shopping done for every possible annoying person to buy for that you can imagine. They've got everything, and I highly recommend that you visit them. You can visit them online at soapplant.com. You can visit the gallery at laluzdejesus.com, and that's spelled L-A-L-U-Z-D-E-J-E-S-U-S.com. Check them out and tell them Matt Kennedy sent you.